Welcome back, About South listeners. I'm doing that thing that you now know that I hate to do, which is the episode introduction. But it seemed like part two of the season wrap-up episode needed it. If you haven't heard part one, go back and listen to part one, or just continue to be a little bit lost and listen to part two. So here we go, last, last episode of the season. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Everyone in the South knows that it takes about three hours and 30 minutes to play four 15-minute quarters of football. (laughs) Yeah. It is embedded in our culture that we know that the temporality here is shifty. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Or even just the idea that the further out you go into the country, the slower time passes. Yeah, I don't know that that's true. Well, it's the time lag of modernity. Yeah. But the truth is, is like something's happening somewhere, somewhere all the time. Right. I mean, time is relative. That's Einstein's thing, right? Right. Yeah. Speaking of relativity, should we talk a bit about the football episode? Sure. Because I know that there is something that... I cut from that episode that I only mentioned briefly that you were disappointed about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gina Kaysen, host of About South, was a majorette. And I hope that I don't get any of the terms incorrect, but she spoke a lot about majoretting in the football episode. Um and then she cut all of it from the final episode, and I was sorely disappointed from, about that. So this is me um, attempting to make her repeat all of her majoretting uh, discussion from the football episode. <clears throat> so I think you mentioned in the episode that uh, there were two different schools of majoretting. <laughs> one was better than the other one. That's true. <laughs> DMA majoretting is so much better than ABA. Okay. So what are the what are the differences in the two? Okay. Are you ready? So <laughs> DMA, drum majorettes of America is the style that some schools use and it is the more of the feature twirler type like when you see like university of tennessee mm-hmm. has a great feature twirler mm-hmm. um classically done um unc chapel hill nc state clemson and it seems to be a little bit more acc when you get to the deep south you have more of an aba style which is the line and the big hair and they still wear the boots and i'm sure that some of those young women are really gifted individual twirlers and could excel at being a featured twirler in the style of dma Mm -hmm. but it's a little bit more um uniform line they aren't doing a lot of fancy things Mm -hmm. they make you say wow like that majorette's really good Mm -hmm. So I was trained, obviously my bias here is (laughs) 
completely obvious in a DMA style um, by a woman. Janice Carmichael is a fantastic Watan teacher. I was really fortunate to work with her growing up. And she was the coach of UNC Chapel Hill's majorettes and had trained many of the majorettes at NC State. When I went to Auburn, I did try out for the majorette line, but being an ABA style, it was very apparent from the audition, even when I walked in, that I was on the wrong field. Mm-hmm. And I try not to hold any bitterness about this, um, but it did change my life. Um, do you have any other questions about majoretting? I mean, I, how did you get into majoretting? Do you want to describe, like your high school experiences with it, and then your audition and how it changed your life? Um, so, the, I'm sure I really wanted to be a majorette because going to NC State football games with my mom and seeing these majorettes that my eventual teacher, Janice Carmichael, had trained. I'm sure that I thought it looked cool. And then the dance studio in my hometown of Mebane Um, Patty Law's dance studio she hired a baton teacher who was just like a local young woman um, I think her name was maybe Ann Kernodal to teach baton and I um, took baton there for two years and I seemed to have some like I was adept (laughs) at baton twirling And then I really knew that I wanted to be majorette at my high school. There was a bit though, um, the only majorette previous to me or the one most previous to me had, you know, the uniformed majorettes wear like bedazzled bathing Mm -hmm. suits. Mm -hmm. I think the majorette immediately before me in my small hometown had not only at one point, I think burned off her ponytail with a fire baton, (laughs) but also was pregnant and I'm not really sure I mean teen pregnancy is a serious thing I shouldn't like laugh about this but like I think the image here is obvious like how in kind of a small southern town like a pregnant teenager in a bedazzled bikini who's like burned her hair off kind of sours the town on the majorette experience right so the band director had famously said that like no more majorettes ever. Mm-hmm. So you not only had to be good at doing the baton twirling, but you also had to convince everyone at your school that like this was a reputable thing. Yes, I had to save majorette, the reputation of majorettes everywhere from Evan, North Carolina. So okay. I worked really hard. Um, then I took baton somewhere else and then my mom was able to kind of like finagle that I maybe could go to Raleigh, which was an hour away, to study baton with Janice Carmichael, who was such a serious majorette teacher that she had a vanity tag on her car that said twirl. Oh, oh Janice, I, I need to actually call her. Like, I just... Everything oh about discipline in my life, I learned practically from Janice Carmichael. I think that next season, if she is up for it, we should talk to her about majoretting. Oh my God, she's had so many DMA like world champions. And I was, essentially I think I was the last student she took. Like she was retiring. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And it was really special. Um, I was not anywhere close to as good as even a lot of the students she had had previously. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of got to her too late, if that makes sense. But I was still, like, I mean, like, I'm I'm pretty good at twirling baton. I mean, I could, like, throw the baton over there and do cartwheels and twirl three batons at once. And I can still, because I learned so much of it when I was 12, our muscle memory is really good at that age. Right. And so a lot of baton twirling is permanently in my muscle memory. Mm -hmm. So I could probably go outside and still do a lot of the things. I mean, aside from the fact, like, my body's old. (laughs) Um, but majoring, if I have to like step back and psychoanalyze myself a bit, which I think this is what y'all all found really amusing on the podcast. <laughs> first of all, I am not someone like cheerleading never interested me. Mm-hmm. I liked the idea, I think, of being the majorette. Because as an only child, I liked the idea of, like, being the only one. Mm-hmm. But I don't think a lot of people who know me now would say, oh, I bet Gina Kaysen every Friday from 8th grade to senior year in the fall put on a bedazzled bathing suit and jumped around on the football field in front of the whole town, like, <laughs> twirling sticks. Yeah. Like, do you feel like that's something people would know about me? No. I think that's what was so shocking about about you talking about it on the on the round table. It was just like this is something completely out of left field. Yeah. This is not anything that we would expect from you. I think anyone I think most of you from my hometown would remember me as a really good majorette. Yeah. Um, I do think though it was And it's hard to talk about it because it sounds like I'm like, you know, like tooting my own horn a bit. Mm -hmm. But objectively speaking, I think I was primarily known until the age of 18 for being a good baton twirler. And then everybody in your hometown now is just like, did you hear that Gina Kaysen went on to get a PhD? And I don't think anyone in my hometown knows any of that. (laughs) That major ed girl? Yeah, people she eventually like, got a PhD. <laughs> what? <laughs> right. I mean, but there are a lot of the same skills. <laughs> I really think there's a lot of transferable skills between major editing and what I do now. Yeah, um, I can see that. It's a lot of long hours by yourself practicing. Mm. Like no one. Now, now I'm like, obviously, like, kind of waxing serious about baton twirling. But no one can make you able to do that really hard baton trick except for you. Mm-hmm. And you just have to go in the yard and do it over and over and over. And it's just like brutal hours of individual practice. Mm-hmm. Because what you want to show people is something that looks really polished and good. Mm-hmm. But the backstory of that is like, just lonely and dirty and gross which is a little bit how I feel about writing books yeah (laughs) let's talk about some other things from the football episode yeah because we got some feedback from a really fantastic listener um that I want to kind of for us to talk about I'm gonna read it 
Okay. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so this listener wrote in and said that she really liked the episode, but she wanted to challenge us a little bit on something. Oh. That this experience, um, women are not more respected in sports spectating in the North. That this is not oh. a regional inflection here. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, for example, she went to IU, which I guess is Indiana, right? Mm-hmm. And when she told people she was a diehard University of Louisville basketball fan, a then friend who she said was smart and, quote, progressive, said that she was just trying, just saying that to, quote, be cute slash get male attention. And then he asked her to, quote, name at least five players. She said, much less thinking, even though that I am from Kentucky and I'm going to a dynasty basketball school, that I understood the game. And instead of telling him to F off, I listed them because basketball is life. (laughs) She said, going to almost any bar in America as a single woman, especially in Big Ten country, it was assumed, or no, I assumed if not in a group, I would be bothered by dudes. I think the sexual politics is not football slash Southern slash political party slash whatever specific. It's what we're allowed to watch and not allowed to watch without being watched. And they have to let us know we are being watched. We can't get the freedom to just enjoy something that they think of as theirs. And by they, I think she means men. Men. Or we can, but many men just don't like it. And unfortunately, I think things will change as women's incomes climb because money is at the root. Then she said, you're now officially a rant recipient. (laughs) Time for beer, go cards, war eagle, question mark. (laughs) She said, oh my lord, longest text ever, ha. I was joking about the beer, but now I'm not. (laughs) So what do we think of this? It's not Southern. It's not football specific. It's nationwide. Men's weird territorial habits around women's enjoyment. Yeah, I haven't experienced spectator sports watching sports outside of the south but it seems like she's her experiences sort of validate that i think there are some particular resonances in the south perhaps that might make it different here but yeah seems like it's a national national thing across all sports. So kicking up the next episode, it's about old maids. You know, Allie, uh, following the episode, Allie Arendt was married. She was getting married, I think, the weekend after we recorded. Which made it exceptionally gracious of her to... Drive to <laughs> Worcester, Massachusetts from New York. Mm-hmm. En route, but not really, to Boston <laughs> to get her future husband's things so they could merge their lives, all their book babies, 
Hmm. Books are not babies. So yeah, we're gonna call um, we're gonna call Allie and we're gonna check in and see and how see how her book merger is going since our um, since our episode. Yeah, let's call her. Oh, hello, Allie Errant. Here I am. How are you guys? Good. It's me and Kelly and all of the About South listeners because you're being recorded. Ah. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hi, Allie. Hi, Kelly. Nice to talk with you. Nice to talk with you, too. Um, So we are doing our, we're recording our season wrap-up, going through every episode and either following up with people or playing clips and talking about you know, some unused stuff, but we really, when it came to you, we wanted to check in and see how the merger of the libraries is going and how (laughs) your post old maid existence has been, because you were not yet married when we recorded that episode. That's right. I was just like, you know, 10 days out or something like that. Yeah. So Uh, how is it? It's been good. I mean, I will tell you the truth though. The the libraries actually have not merged. (laughs) Are you going to merge? I don't think so. I mean, maybe at some point necessity will dictate it. But for now, it has kind of worked out for him to keep his books on his bookcase and me to keep mine on mine. He keeps joking about wanting to write in my books with pen. And I keep being like, don't do that. That's not really something you joke Uh, about there. (laughs) I know. (laughs) This is my feeling as well. Uh, But uh, if we don't read that as sort of the index of how the marriage so far is going, I think, which is, I think, the right way to read it. Um, it is going quite well. So. Oh, good. Though the libraries are not merged, uh, married life suits me quite nicely. And, uh, yeah, it's been pretty It's been pretty great. Not without its trickinesses. I've thought a lot about, um, I mean, maybe I never feel more like an old maid previously than now that I'm married and feel kind of all my fussy ways. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Someone else, too. (laughs) What has been the biggest surprise? Uh, I think, like, kind of how tightly I do feel attached to certain ways of doing things. Uh, I keep thinking about that Mary Wilkins Freeman story, A New England Nun. Maybe we talked about this the first time. But in that one, the woman, like, she really likes her doilies a certain way. And uh, she ends up not getting married so that she can keep her doilies her certain way. Um, and it does seem like those are your options. Like either you kind of keep things the way you want them or you open up your home and your life to someone else and then things change. Uh, but I do think the you know, the woman in that story makes her choice to, to not pursue the relationship and I respect people's rights to do that. But I also feel happy to have made the choice I did and to feel the niceness of, uh, you know, like being someone who's... Uh, grip on my doilies isn't so tight that (laughs) 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 a grip on your doilies that is an amazing phrase I mean I'm I'm guessing that you don't have that many doilies in your house anyway you what these I said I'm guessing you don't have that many doilies anyway these are metaphorical doilies nary a doily but but as a metaphor many doilies yeah, we yeah. all have many, many, many doilies. Um, totally. Well, that's good. It's so um, good to hear your voice. I also know, and you don't have to tell us if they hated it, but is it true that you made your students listen to the Crayfish episode? Oh, yes, I did. 
they were really into it and they loved it and they wanted to know they wanted to get in on the voting and then uh like a slacker professor i forgot to follow up and give them the information so that they could follow up but is it true that the crayfish is going to be named at the after party coming up yes that is true and tell your students the naming contest is actually going on right now what oh they will be so excited (laughs) okay oh good okay well um please tell them thank you for listening that the crayfish details are going up on all the websites when this airs on friday we'll be like right in the thick of it and um they should definitely get involved and cast their votes i will tell them we may try to rig it i should warn you but um i suppose that's fair now it will have been broadcast so maybe that makes it yeah but they were so excited and i will say too that i think that um they were smarter all semester about southern lit from listening to the podcast so thank you for your good work oh you're too kind i don't believe you but i um i'll take the compliment (laughs) you should you should believe me it's really kelly's hard work i think i I just uh show up and ask people invasive questions about their lives (laughs) like how your doilies (laughs) And your bookshelves. How are your toilets? Don't touch my toilets. <laughs> okay. Well, Allie, thanks so much for letting us call you today. Um, great to talk. Thank you all for your work. It's it's a great pleasure, and it's fun to it's fun to learn and think with you all. Oh, thanks. We feel the same way. Tell your students we said hello, and tell your lovely husband we also said hello. I will. I will. Thanks so much. Take okay. care, y'all. Bye. All right. Bye. So what we've just learned is that we may not have Russian hackers, but Northern hackers. Staten Island student <laughs> vote riggers. Hmm. I'm okay with that. Maybe a bunch of Staten Island. I mean, are we going to allow for a write-in? No. Whoa. No. Okay, these are the names. There was a process by which you could nominate. Right. Okay, I agree. The nominations are set. No write-ins. The bracket will commence. Yes. Okay. You don't have to spare the devil's feelings. You don't have to drive the devil back home. Also recorded in Worcester, Massachusetts, I had the good pleasure of being at the American Antiquarian Society at the same time as Tara Bynum. We had not met before, but we were fast friends. We bonded over some very specific requirements for collard greens, actually, (laughs) one night at a restaurant. Oh. And then we were like, okay, yes, we can be friends now. Um, and when I heard about her work, I was like, you have to be on About South Mm -hmm. because you're a wonderful and funny. Mm -hmm. And while the episode focused on John Merritt, we also talked to Tara about another Southern writer, early African-American writer, David Walker. Mm. And even though we were talking about good feelings, we talked about an underrated good feeling, which is anger. And this is an emotion, Kelly, I know you're also really interested in. Yeah. 
What do you like about anger? I thought that um, one of the things that I love about the clip that you're about to play uh, is that, you know, she really touches on the pleasure of anger, right? Like the good feeling you get when you are angry and it's justified and you come up with the right words to express your anger adequately. Um, and it's really sort of fulfilling in this evil kind of... Uh, oh, it's delicious, <laughs> right? Yeah, in this oh. kind of terrifying way. Um, yeah. That sort of also keeps you in touch with like... <laughs> Oh, I could be a really awful person if I just were this mean all the time. <laughs> yeah, but I think like to me it's like something like even it's not even awful. It's like you have to get angry about the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Let's go to the clip, and then I have a couple more things I think to say about it. Yeah. All right. Let me tell you, I I just want people to talk about black people having fun, and I just want them to remember that it it could even happen in the 18th century. David Walker and his appeal, everyone knows for its anger, its apostrophes, is it apostrophes? That's the wrong one. Exclamation points. Um, And it's italics. You know, he's super dramatic in the actual layout of the book in a way that makes clear that he is angry, he's yelling, and he wants people to get mad about it. But even in that, there is, there's an, the anger is in pursuit of good feeling. Like you get angry now, you ri- you rise up now so that you can know the goodness of freedom, you can know the goodness of of creating, maybe not creating, but remaking the nation that you live in. You know, there like even in in this document that is so known for its anger, there's the possibility of of good feeling. And I think there are so many more examples of that also the very sense like being angry being angry can feel good talk about it like that is <laughs> true like sometimes yeah, the yeah. appropriate and best yeah. feeling is to feel righteous anger to feel righteous anger and then to tell somebody angrily oh, yes. about it like that also is delightful it is you can you can you know, act out how you would have cussed the person out, or maybe you cuss the person out and you get to reenact it. Like, there is joy in that. No doubt about it. This reminds me of something you talked a little bit about in the football episode where the level of BS that women have to deal with on a daily basis, <laughs> that football is also the perfect sublimation of anger. Yeah. And there are all these instances. Yeah. That, I mean, in the football episode, it was sort of talking about just like navigating through the world as a woman and not being able to express anger because it's not ladylike. Um, It's not an accepted part of being your gender. Um, (laughs) And how, you know, like stifling down that anger and and rage, it's, it's really frustrating. And then watching through the through the act of like cheering and 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 participating in in football, you're able to sort of like get out that anger and get out that rage, and it's really pleasurable. Yeah, and also I love that she um, also talks about 
David Walker and this idea of black anger mm-hmm. aligned with black pleasure because there's so much cultural stereotype around the angry black woman. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to combat that, I think that what Tara's work also asks us to do is like completely recuperate it and say, this is a perfectly acceptable way to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Right. And then that anger does something good. Right. It is necessary and correct and good. Yeah. And also that it's not disfiguring anger, right? That it's not somebody who is walking through the world just angry at everything. Because I feel like I've heard so many times just that if you end up angry or end up angry, you've done something wrong as a woman, right? You've become like bitter or... Oh, that this anger will eat you from the inside. Right. It's like, no, it won't. And and I think that thinking about anger in terms of pleasure and the pleasure that it can give um, when it is like a righteous anger, when, you know, it is towards something, towards reshaping the world, as, as Tara as Tara's, um, saying, it is not something that disfigures, right? It's not something that is that becomes synonymous with your person but it is like a pleasurable thing a pleasurable emotion that leads toward goodness i think that's really radical and wonderful yeah tara has to come back sometime Episode 12. Right. Matt Dishinger came by to drink with us. (laughs) And this was a terrible episode to edit because by the end, we were actually, I think, just a little bit tipsy. Yeah. And I was like, I can't. I've lost the narrative. But some really good things came up in these moments. And I'd like to revisit them. And one of them is going to be another critique that you have for me. Oh. I'm going to find a sorority girl the next time I go to an Auburn football game. Matt, you're going tomorrow. That's true. I'm not going tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I think you probably won't regret that. <laughs> no, I think we're going to win. Who are you guys playing tomorrow? That's good. LSU. Oh. Who? I think you'll win tomorrow. I think we're going to win. I think we're going to shut down Fournette. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that went pretty well last time. No, no, this year it's going to happen. I think we have to win tomorrow because Gus Malzahn is fighting for his life. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's fired mid-season if we lose like tomorrow. No, we're not going to yeah. fire him mid-season. Yeah, dude. That's yeah. a terrible idea. Who are we going to hire? Cody Burns? Actually, I think, I think Cody would actually make a great coach. <laughs> he's, a good, he's a good guy. Tom Herman. Houston's coach. Oh. We can't get him away from I just Houston? Think it starts earlier. You know, the whole, like, fire your coach. Because you don't want to be the last one to fire your coach. Like, if, if LSU is going to fire less miles, like, if they beat us, but then they also lose, like, eight more games or something, you don't want to fire Malzahn 
after they fire Les Miles. Because then the best coach is going to go to LSU. Here's what's going to happen. Malzahn's going to get fired at the end of the season. We're probably talking no to Tom, Tom Herman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's going to have to pull out a miracle. And I like him. But, I do too. Yeah, I like him. But I think what Malzahn's going to go to NC State. That's interesting. I can see that. And I think he may do well. He's gonna, You know what he's going to do there? He's going to do what he's done everywhere. In his first season, he's going to like take an offense national for a national championship. championship. <laughs> and NC State's going to lose their damn mind. Then they're going to be in the position we're in. And then here is my real concern. Someone asked me what would happen if Auburn hired Lane Kiffin. Oh, that come on. That would just be a pocket. I would actually stop watching Auburn football games that's, until he was fired. No, that would Because my love for Auburn happen. I know, my love for Auburn I've realized that's it does limit. not surpass my hatred for Lane Kiffin. Yeah, that's I agree. That's the limit. I think there's some like about War Eagle spin-off podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you Matt, do you know Angela Polly Hudson? I don't. Oh, she's a Southern historian, Native okay. historian, okay. works on Native South stuff. At Auburn, I assume. She did her undergrad at Auburn. That's and not only people, did she do her undergrad at Auburn, she was an Auburn English major. She went on to get her PhD in American Studies, and now she's a historian. But she's on the podcast coming up talking about early South stuff. And Auburn. And we also talk Auburn football briefly. <laughs> <laughs> because I just have to wedge it in. Because All natural. of my future editing suggestions are going to be cut out the Auburn. But it's so relevant to everything we're doing. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. no, it's really not. It was relevant to the blue crayfish. <laughs> it was, it was, that was the first and last time outside of the football episode that was relevant. When is it, uh, when else does it come up? Seems like pretty much every time, just from my perspective. <laughs> I haven't heard it on the podcast, but I, I mean, I know Monica didn't talk about Auburn, but no. besides that, Scott hates Auburn. Have you ever had this conversation with Scott? Scott Romine hates Auburn? He's a oh, UGA no. grad. Oh, no. Okay, so um, we're basically, like, uh, we're not three sheets, but we're, like, at least one sheet in at this point, right? Yeah. Um. Matt Dishinger is an Auburn grad, for those mm-hmm. of you that didn't catch it. Mm-hmm. I'm an Auburn grad. Angela Polly Hudson's an Auburn grad. Auburn solved the blue crayfish story. Yeah. Auburn is really important to this podcast. Some would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why you want me to talk about Auburn less. Do I talk about Auburn that much? There's a lot of Auburn. There's a lot of Auburn. Can we go back to the... Yeah, yeah. Okay, you want us to examine some evidence here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, there was no Auburn... There, were, there was Auburn in the crayfish episode. That was not my doing. I Well, it was your doing, but it was understandable. Right. Um, I mean, I did reach out to them, but they did solve the question. Mm-hmm. I I had reached out to, like, a gazillion people before that. Right. I feel like there were a lot of Auburn connections that I'm not making up. Yeah. Is Kirsten... She didn't go to Auburn. There's no Auburn connection there? No. Yeah. I mean... Was there some Pasaquan? Auburn no, connection. I did not shoehorn <laughs> Auburn into Passaquan. 
<laughs> well, on to Auburn graduate extraordinaire, Angela Foley Hudson, who, get this, this is where the world all connects. Mm-hmm. Angela Polly Hudson was childhood friends with Molly McGee. Oh. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. We did not plan any of this. Are, well, I was going to ask if they were still friends. Yeah, they're still that, friends. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're That's still good. friends. Yeah. No, it's uh, it was really exciting. Angela and I also met in Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh. And I had never met her before, but I'd long admired her work. Mm-hmm. Then she had mentioned that Molly had mentioned me. And then we kind of became a little bit friends through Molly. And then one night, because everyone at the Antiquarian Society lives in this fellow's house, mm-hmm. football came up. And Angela was talking about being a football fan and having a lot of superstitions and having to change t-shirts and like, but her husband pulled for a different team. And I very cautiously said, because I was so worried that she was going to say she was an Alabama fan. Oh, no. And I said, what are the two teams that are pulled for in your house? And she was like, well, my husband's a UGA fan and I went to Auburn. And I jumped up and I said, I went to Auburn. And then one of the guys in the room said, I feel like y'all should hug now. <laughs> and then then Angela and I were like real friends. Because mm-hmm. then we found out we were actually both even English majors there. Oh. Were yeah. you there at the same time? No. Oh. Um, so it was really exciting to me. But Angela's episode has gotten a ton of feedback. Mm-hmm. This Okatubby story, everyone has to go buy her book on this because I would probably say that we have gotten maybe some of the most feedback on this episode mm-hmm. and just people captivated by this story. And one of the questions that has come up is did Lucy Stanton, also known as La Seal, know that Okatubby, also known as Warner McCary, was performing Indianness? And Actually, we have a clip about that that did not make it into the episode, so I thought we'd just let Angela explain this to us now. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's not clear what he knew or didn't know about his own identity, so it's not clear what she knew or didn't know about his identity. But then what becomes clear is they are both become performative Indians, that they have to do that for their own material safety. I think I think they I think that's one of the advantages of doing it. Um, the other main reason that they do it is to make a living. Um, there are, and I put forth a number of other reasons in the book as to why she developed her own Indian persona because there's evidence that she was sort of into playing Indian before they met. There's evidence from her early conversion and from you know sort of. Um, experience that she had as a as an ecstatic worshiper where, where some and many other Mormons as well would um, in the very very early church in, in Kirtland Ohio um, were recorded as having experiences where they would say they are experiencing what the Lamanites experience or they are actually becoming Indian and that sort of thing so I think that this the the seed of this was already in her was already with her um, for a variety of reasons but yes, I think that part of why they um, de- embark on this performance of Indianness for as a couple is to protect their interracial relationship, 
um, uh, to make a living. And, um, and I think also to, I mean, I, I leave the possibility open in the book that they liked it. They well, enjoyed yeah. it. I yeah. mean, there was something pleasurable about it, right? It, whether it helped them to sort of access a voice or access a, you know, a sense of power in a, in a world in which they didn't really have a whole lot of um, you know, sense of empowerment. Um, so, so I try to kind of you know, leave open all those possibilities, keep all those balls afloat at once, right? Because I, I really don't know. They never say, this is why I did it, right? Uh, there's another sort of great mystery is, you know, I don't know if she believes what he says about his background. It's unclear. There are still some, you know, big questions, looming questions that are, you know, really frustrating to the historian, but must remain about when exactly he begins to develop this Indian persona and whether or not he, this is entirely public or whether all, he also has this persona when he's in private. Um, that I don't have any letters between the two of them. I don't have any private writings of either of them. So, you know, whether or not she um, is convinced of what he says about his ancestry and his genealogy sort of remains a great mystery, both for me and, I guess, for the readers of the book. So this was a question you also had, Kelly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I had my own half-baked theory that perhaps something had happened in Canada, right, at the end of the story. And that's why she had gone, she had left him and gone back to rejoin her family. But it's all sort of conjecture. But I think this is kind of the story that, that you know, when you can't know what happens or what has happened, and that's part of what's so compelling about it, is that it's so strange and it's so incomplete that you can't really know what happened to either of them or why they made the decisions they made. Right. I mean, how? why does anyone make the decisions they make? <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, but theirs are on such a large scale. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really one of my favorite stories that we've come across this yeah. season. And I knew nothing about it, which... Really, the common thread this season has been, I don't know much about a lot of things, (laughs) which we find out in the next episode um, with Eric Gary Anderson, also an incredibly popular episode. It was our Halloween episode. Mm -hmm. Um, And you particularly like this clip coming up. Mm -hmm. Why? (laughs) Uh, I think in a similar way to the last one, it deals with sort of in internal motivations and knowledge and things of that nature what who but it's who wants what how how do we know right okay you want to go to the clip yeah okay it's hearing you talk about vampires i feel like i kind of understand what vampires want it's unclear what zombies want they don't really want they don't have wants i guess Right? They don't really have, they certainly don't have motives, right? They don't have motives. And they don't, it's a, I guess a fine line between wants and needs with zombies. I mean, they, you know, it's brains, right? They, they It's usually brains. They need brains. Yeah, and that's kind of how they roll, right? That's it. That's, you know, it's just. 
But vampires want something. Like, they don't want to be lonely. I think living forever makes them sad. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool for a while, but then it's, you know. I mean, it must get really lonely for all the people, you know, to die. Yeah. Yeah. And forever is a long time to be friends with someone. So your friendships probably fall apart after, like, what, a hundred or so years. Right? Yeah. When you have to go make new friends. I would think so. Yeah. No Um, friendship can sustain that. And vampires are, um, yeah, they, so they want companionship to some extent, although they're not really very good at it. Um, <laughs> and they seem to be quite terrible. Yeah. They yeah. suck. But um boom. Ba-dum, ba-dum. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, did okay. you guys high five at the end of that? I don't think we actually high fived. Okay. We were coming off of our William Faulkner ghost trauma. Okay. This is why I was having a crisis of like, what? Okay, so with Eric, not only was I like, what do zombies want? What do vampires want? I was like, what do werewolves want? Mm-hmm. Like, for some reason, I got really obsessed with what various monsters want. I mean, it's a valid question. Yeah. He answered all of them, but yeah. you can hear his exasperation with me. <laughs> There's a pretty deep sigh in there. (laughs) What do zombies want? Like, I don't know. I feel like I want to know that. Yeah. I guess they don't want things. Can I also bring up the wonderful Dracula sequel that... Alucard? Alucard. Yes. I could not get through listening to that part without rolling on the floor laughing really oh i loved his description of (laughs) count alucard in georgia in the swamp well i like that i just assumed that what count alucard wants is to go on vacation and he's like he's not on vacation like eric didn't say that i just (laughs) assumed that what a vampire wants is to go on vacation yeah but he wants American virile people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it sort of becomes this like story of American exceptionalism. But the way that Eric explains it where he says that it sets the tone of the of the film when somebody looks at the crate and they're just like, Alucard, what's that? He's just Dracula the- backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part too. Oh man. I haven't watched it yet. I, I have to confess. I feel like you and Eric need to get together and watch it and do a um, do a like MST3K style oh. commentary on Count Alucard or is it is it Son of Dracula? I think that's what I it's think actually it's Son called. of Dracula. Yeah, you get it right. Um, another listener after Molly McGee's episode, as it turns out, had sent me a link to it. Oh. Saying I should check it out, and I hadn't had time, but then now that there have been two strong About South recommendations for Son of Dracula, um, I realize I need to watch it. I'm going to potentially see Eric. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll see him in Philadelphia, I think, at the beginning of January, and then I think I'm also going to see him potentially later in January when we, when I will be in Washington, D.C. for the Million Women March. 
maybe we'll squeeze in time to watch Son of Dracula together. This would make my life. Yeah. Well, I'll see. First, we have to um, get through our contemporary political moment, Mm -hmm. which we also had an episode about. Right. Which was recorded on October 15th. (sighs) And who knows what the future holds now. Um, I think let's just go to the clip. This is an unaired clip from this episode with Joey Kennedy talking about politics, Trump, and the South. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason I lost my job was because I was writing, um, I I mean, I'm on the left, and um, and I was writing columns when I wrote opinion uh, for political opinion and still do today, you know, for Alabama Political Reporter, and I write a back page column for B Metro, but when I wrote opinion for the newspaper, I was definitely to the left. They knew that, but they didn't like the response to it. And so um, I was, like, moved into other areas because I don't think they liked Jeff Sessions calling him up and saying, why are you letting him say those things about me? And Jeff Sessions, by the way, is a senator from Alabama. And um, and I don't think they like the kind of, you know, it's messy business, all right? If, if you tick somebody off, you're probably, your editors are probably going to get a call. And the editors have to say, you know, you just write him a letter or live with it or whatever. It's uh, the First Amendment. Yeah. When they come at you and say, you know, I wish you wouldn't write this or I wish you wouldn't write that, well... I've never responded very well to that. And so they wouldn't say it. And so the alternative was to move me to something else, uh, which I proposed. And, and so I did move to something else. And, uh, but now I'm back to writing, you know, the same kind of stuff I was writing for them for just a different outlet who says to me, you, I'm not telling you what to write. You write what you want to write. Uh, you've done this for 40 years. Um, you know, I'm not going to presume to tell you what you can and cannot write. And I know Alabama politics well, and so my editors understand that. And I know, you know, sometimes have to be pulled back a little bit by my editor, who is my wife, Veronica. But, um, and that's important. Uh, but I like that idea, write what you want to write. And it's not appreciated, I don't think, in, a, in much of the mainstream media now, um, because they are trying to appeal to certain audiences. And in Alabama, um, I was definitely writing against audience. Um, What they needed to do, um, which they did poorly, was find somebody to write to that audience and let me write to the other. I always said, you know, I want to drag, if I have to drag them kicking and screaming, then that's what I'm here to do. Um, If I have to bang my head against that wall, for my whole career, then that's what I'm here to do. I'm not here to tell them what they want to hear. I'm here to tell them what they need to hear. And if they can't handle it because it goes against some particular philosophy that they have, then they'll just have to, you know, deal with it. And I don't mind them writing me and telling me, all right, you know, I disagree with you because this is what matters. That's absolutely fine. 
but you know to say you know you're fat and your wife is ugly and your mother sucks and you know that kind of stuff because they had no argument so they go to the ad hominem and and that's exactly what generally happened um uh whenever well that's what trump does and that's exactly what trump does he is that audience crooked hillary um and uh, she should be in Whitey jail. Rubio, or, yeah. And then his small hands, which I forget who told him that, but I, know. I, I mean, yeah, he he resorts to that homonym. He is that audience. Yep. And that's why yes. they they like to see that. And remember, he's an entertainer. Yeah. Um, he's a reality show guy. If this hasn't been reality show, um, you know, I don't know what what it is. Um. It's and not even a good reality show. No, it's 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 horrible. It's it's scary. It's um. It's like American Horror Story. Yeah, it could be a whole season of American <laughs> yeah. Horror Story. Yeah, but we don't even need that show anymore because we just have this. So there are some interesting things. This clip takes on some interesting valence as it has aged, one month, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of background, Joey Kennedy was with the Birmingham News. Due to a whole host of factors, they terminated his contract somewhat unceremoniously after 30 plus years. And you can look up the details online, but that's all I'll really get into that. But indeed, Joey Kennedy spent his whole career writing, as he says, against audience. Something else that comes out. What stands out to you, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, really interesting that he, at this point in time, needs to tell us who Jeff Sessions is, uh, because now we all know who Jeff Sessions is, um, because he's currently... uh, Our next potential uh, attorney attorney general. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Jeff Sessions... I think it's important to point out Jeff Sessions is calling the Birmingham News complaining that he doesn't like what an editorial political reporter is saying about him. Yeah. I say grow a thicker skin, Jeff Sessions. (laughs) I don't like what Jeff Sessions has said about people like me. Who do I call? Yeah. I also think that it's really troubling. I think that there are a lot of things that are really troubling about everything that's Joey Kennedy is talking about here. You know, the response of the press to that comment, the response that Jeff Sessions would have to a skating editorial. Um, the fact that he is now becoming the attorney general (laughs) and in a very real way can shape um, the rights that we have under the First Amendment Um, and that he is going to be in power under one of the people who has already in his campaign tried to limit access to the press in his own sort of way of speaking to his campaign. Well, and that the press is regarded merely as a business enterprise. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, the press 
is a business, mm-hmm. but the responsibility the the responsibility of the press is a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see how this goes. I mean, at the time I was joking, it's American Horror Story, mm-hmm. but it is a little bit that. And, I mean, it underscores, if nothing else, the interview here with Joey Kennedy underscores why it's important to pay attention to what's happening in the South and what's happening in Southern politics and why it's important to pay attention to the South beyond just this mass of red states. Who is in power? What are the people in power doing? What is the press doing to keep those people accountable? Um and to hold them accountable for their actions and how free is our press mm-hmm. and how free is our is are the institutions that we are calling our press enabling our journalists to be so i think that there are plenty of questions here that that joey kennedy sort of highlights um in this response that that we need to continue to pay attention to absolutely this is bringing us to the end of this season with another timely episode that I perhaps didn't intend to be so timely, but was recorded and edited before Trump won the election. And I got so much feedback about this episode in particular, um, feeling especially poignant for listeners. I, I think one listener even mentioned to me that they cried listening to it. And this is about the Aniston Freedom Writers Memorial that is up for National Monument status. One of the things that I did not include in the episode was Vice Mayor Sayram Selassie talking about having left Alabama and gone to school in Kentucky, which is arguably potentially still the South, but is certainly further North and away from home, his home of Anniston, Alabama. And I just wanted to maybe kind of end on this note a little bit. As we mentioned earlier, growing up in Anniston, you leave, you go to school in Kentucky. What brings you back? Because a lot of us, myself included, I think a lot of us who grow up in the South who maybe have politics or ideas or interests that don't always match the larger community around us. A lot of us have stories where we leave. And then weirdly, we also, a lot of us have stories where we come back. Mm -hmm. What brought you back to Anniston? Very good question. Um, When I was in college, I had a guy, really good mentor and professor. And you know, he was always encouraging some students to go back. If you get a chance, you don't have to stay home, but go back home. And he said, when you think about some of your great up and coming American cities now, he was talking about Atlanta's and Dallas and places like that. He said, the only reason those places are as, as great as they are because of people who are from there were willing to go back and make it better. And I was like, huh. And, and that really stuck with me. You know, I eventually always wanted to come back home to give back to the place that gave so much to me. And when I moved back home in 2008, 
Um, I was looking around, and at that particular time, the, the political local government structure was not good at all. Um, I mean, we literally had council members fighting each other physically, um, verbal assaults all the time. You know, the, the city's morale was just really, really low. So I said, you know, what better way to also get back to the city than to just see if I can lend some of my abilities to public service. So I ran for the first time in 2012 and was elected um, with 63% uh, of the vote. And, you know, I just consistently have had that inner passion and inner drive to make home better. Um, you know, give to some of these young people the abilities and tools that I didn't necessarily have growing up. Um, I didn't have a young city council person coming into my school and talking to me and saying, hey, you can be just like me. Um, I just didn't have that type of example. But to be able to provide that to young people here in the community, um, it's, it's been truly, truly amazing. It's been humbling. And again, I'm just giving back to the place that gave so much to me. What a hopeful, wonderful note to end on. No, I know. And it's been, it really underscores for me how many exceptional people we've had the chance to talk to through the process of making this season and how much good potential there is in the South. I did also want to um, mention that Ashley Yaley, who receive a shout out on the football podcast because I frequently watch football with her. Mm -hmm. She was back home um, yesterday and we watched the Iron Bowl. Nice. I see you looking at me because I'm <laughs> wedging Auburn <clears throat> football into this. I would like to mention that Saram Selassie is a Auburn football fan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a documented fact. I'm not making that up. I know. But... Um, <laughs> Ashley said right now she is in New Haven, Connecticut, and she said that she appreciates hearing the show each week because she likes hearing um, progressive, smart conversation in a Southern accent. <laughs> and it's a little bit, I think, what Frank Brannon was saying, mm -hmm. that part of this is for all of you out there who are maybe either curious about the South or have ideas about the South or you're from here and you live somewhere else or you live here, a place to have conversations that sometimes maybe seem few and far between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in the conversations that I've had with my friends who listen um, and other folks who've just uh, wanted to talk about the show, what I've heard is that what we're doing here has really sort of shown people that everyone's relationship with the South is, is complex and fraught and difficult. <laughs> um, even people who have lived here their whole lives um, and who would absolutely consider themselves Southern. Um, and then the people who have left and come back or who were raised here and who have left since um, and who haven't made the return home um, or consider their homes elsewhere. I think that another thing that we do, that we hope to do, and that um, I've heard from listeners that we have done, 
is sort of showing that everyone's relationship with this region, with this identity, with this place, with this time, if we're wanting to talk about it in temporal, uh, in temporal terms, is really fraught and really complicated. Um, and so I think that that's really valuable too. Yeah, and by fraught, it's not just fraught bad. It it's the whole it's the whole everything. It is that tension between the good and the bad and the the easy and the complex and I mean mm-hmm. everyone has that. If you don't have that, you're probably not thinking about it very hard. Mm-hmm. Um and we're going to continue to do it. Yeah. Kelly and I will be conducting more interviews, doing more things. We will be back July 7th with a whole new second season of About South. In the meantime, we'll have updates. Mm-hmm. Also, please come to our <laughs> wrap-up party. Um, if you can get to Atlanta, East Atlanta Village, Argosy, they're excited to have us. We will have some small snacks provided, but everyone's on their own for drinks because um, we don't have deep pockets here in About South. <laughs> and I will have already like blown my budget ordering the blue crayfish. And I've bought too many leaves this month. <laughs> Kelly is not going to have gifts for everyone. Um, but come through, uh, raise a glass with us. We'd also just like, there's so many people to thank. Um, all of our guests this season, many of whom will be there. Also, um, Lindsay Alexander is someone we should mention who has corresponded a lot with me about the podcast and actually has her own podcast launching on January 2nd called Story of My Life, where she interviews people above the age of 70 and asks them the story of their lives. Oh, wow. It's going to be wonderful, and it's definitely going to hold all of you who are weekly About South listeners it's going to captivate your attention between now and when we return in July. So check out Story of My Life podcast. It launches January 2nd. We don't have any advertisers, so I don't think we have any of them to thank. <laughs> um, we welcome advertisers for the second season. Yeah. And we do need to thank Brian Horton. Mm-hmm. who allowed us to use his music however we wanted to all season long. We also should thank our special musical guest, Allie Arendt, provided the music for her own episode. Stuart McNair, a musician who's now based in New Orleans, but is from Alabama, allowed us to use his song, Alabama, for the episode with Joy Kennedy. And Jay Price, who is from Anniston, Alabama, and grew up with Sayram Selassie, allowed us to use his music for the episode on the Freedom Riders. We've had a lot of really good music this season. Oh my goodness, it's really been fantastic. And I think maybe what we should do is figure out just a Spotify list, maybe, that encompasses the whole season. Mm-hmm. A little soul, a little B-52s, maybe oh. some of our guest artists. Some of the Dolly Parton that we played. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
all the things. Maybe a little bit of Beyonce and Dixie Chicks Lemonade, and <laughs> because I really think we should talk about that at some point. Yeah. Anything else? Well, I think we, we thank all of our special guests. Well, I can run through them. Um. Lindsay Eckert, all of our crayfish specialists, Molly McGeehee, the Vampire Stalkers Tour people, Scott Heath, Michael McFalls, Monica Miller, Kirsten Squint, Leanne Howe, Michael Bibbler, Scott Romine, Alex Patafio, Chris Townsend, Stephanie Roundtree, Allie Arendt, Tara Bynum, Matt Dishinger, Angela Polly Hudson, Eric Gary Anderson, Joey Kennedy, Saram Selassie, and Vaughn Stewart, who were all so generous with their time and energy and ideas and spirit. And we really could not have done this without them. Is there, am I forgetting anyone? I'm surely I'm forgetting all sorts of people. Until then, come have a drink with us at Argosy on December 9th, 7.30 p.m. East Atlanta Village. Details are on the website. I'd love to see you there. Thank you. Bye.